0: Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. We're very excited to announce that we are changing our name to Wild Heart Meditation Center. You can stay subscribed to the podcast as you currently are, or if you choose to join us again at a later date in the future, just remember to search wherever you get your podcasts for Wild Heart Meditation Center. We're excited to be introducing new facilitators to our group and expanding our presence in our local community. Enjoy. For those who were here last week, I talked on the topic of turning towards Dukkha, which Dukkha is kind of the Buddha's first teaching in a way, Um, the first task really. The Buddha encouraged us to turn towards and to be honest about the ways that we suffer in our lives, which is um, an interesting way to start Uh, spiritual path or practice is to kind of start with the problem, which is the Buddha is encouraging us to look at and to be honest about what are the areas in our lives that are difficult? Where's the rub? Where's the dissatisfaction, the disjointedness, the distress, the dis-ease, the dukkha? And this is also echoed a lot in psychotherapy, like a lot of times... Young know, Carl Jung talks about the shadow side is what we're really trying to do is to look into our reactivity, to look into our core beliefs, to look into the aspects of our life that are hard to look at, um, to try to gain insight and perspective. What is causing suffering? We can't really know what causes suffering without knowing how we suffer you know and so this is kind of turning towards what's difficult and learning to understand and also embrace some of the humanness of our suffering a lot of us i think it's no secret uh, that we feel isolated often in our suffering that we're the only ones you know i talk a lot about depression because it's what kept me here in practicing and probably why i'm here today thankful for my depression because one of the voices of my depression is, I'm the only one. I've always felt this way. I'm always going to feel this way. I'm probably the only one that feels this way. And there was this kind of implicit feeling. It wasn't explicit. It wasn't like I was telling myself this all day long. But there was this implicit feeling that I was separate from others. And that's actually what the word dukkha means. If you look at the etymology, du it means separate from the other. It's a feeling of, that something is is not quite right about this person I call me. And so how can we learn to understand and embrace some of the complexity and the vulnerability of what it means to be human? A couple things that I offer, reflections on you know, how can we get to know dukkha. Dukkha doesn't have a great translation in English, which is why you'll hear us say the word dukkha a lot. Um, it could mean anything from disjointedness, which is just the feeling that things aren't quite right. And they're not quite fitting how we would like them to. There are the obvious experiences. You go home, end of a long day, you turn on the light, the light blows out, you walk into the kitchen... You know, you left the sink on, you walk into the living room and your dog crapped on the floor, right? Just like that life has this kind of, uh, you know, aspect of disjointedness. It's not really quite lining up how we want it to. There's a little bit of that thread of what it means to be human. And so that's a more subtle level. On another level, there's stress. And stress is, I like to kind of define it as the constant upkeep and work needed to sustain our lives. Being human is, is work. We've got to feed ourselves. Most of us have to work for a living and you know, make money to keep the lights on, to do the things, and then the hair grows. You've got to cut the hair. You've got to wash the body. You know, you've got to keep up. The experience. And so that's an aspect of dukkha is kind of constant keeping up. And then there are more heavy areas, which I think the word sometimes dukkha is translated as suffering, which is, only gives a kind of inaccurate or lopsided picture of, of the word itself. But sometimes dukkha is despair. You know, it's the experience of separation, loss, confusion, sometimes hopelessness that comes with being human. Last week I talked about three flavors of Dukkha. I talked about how the Buddha categorized it. And the first is the category of Dukkha Dukkha. And Dukkha Dukkha is the physical and mental suffering that's associated specifically with birth, aging, sickness, and death. And so on the physical level, the body is a realm of limitation. We're limited in our bodies. Some of us are born with physical limitations. Some of us experience physical limitations over time. It's a realm of discomfort for sure. <laughs> the body is a realm of injury, sickness, and ultimately decompensation. The body is breaking down. That's Since birth, the body grows and the body breaks down. And so there's this dukkha dukkha. There's this kind of reality to that. You know, and it's, it's, it's for me, it can be easy to intellectually know this. And that's not what the Buddha's asking, but it is a starting point. So that's why we have a Dharma talk, because we can talk about the body. But what is it like to know that experience of having a body that's limited, of having a body that's sick, that gets injured, that gets old, that decomposes over time? And then there's the mental grief or the lamentation, the despair, that comes from these inarguables of life. You know, there's this mental suffering around that. You know, when we lose people in our lives, as the Buddha says, when we're separated from what's dear to us, it's an aspect of dukkha dukkha. This kind of flavor of experience. And then there's another aspect. It's called sankara dukkha. Sankara dukkha is a sense of Dissatisfaction that arises when things don't quite measure up to our expectations or standards. So this is uh, oftentimes when we, in life, experience things that are uh, not the way that we want them to be. We create stories. We make our, our experiences worse by ruminating or uh, you know, creating these stories about how things should be or shouldn't be. Right, you guys know the should, shouldn't, shouldn'ts, right? We should ourselves a lot. That is Sankara. Sankara is this kind of dissatisfaction. Things should be different than the way they are, and the mind creates a story. I should be richer. I should be with the right partner. I should be with a different partner, in a different position, a different, especially at my age, I should be with this and that, right? And so the mind creates these stories about usually self, self and other, A lot of our Sankara suffering is social in the sense of do we fit, you know, we're wired to be in a tribe, so the brain is constantly acknowledging and trying to see, do I compare, do I measure up, am I I in the tribe, am I out of the tribe, do I even like the tribe, so we get a lot of judgment, comparing, competing, proving, outperforming Sankara, suffering, suffering, suffering. (laughs) And then there's this other aspect of uh, what's called wiperinamaduka. Wiperinamaduka is that we experience anxiety when we try to hold on to things that are constantly changing. So we may experience enjoyment. You get the partner, you get the car, you get the house, you get the job, you got it, right? And then it changes. And that's one of the things that we know intellectually. We even have bumper stickers that say, the only thing that's constant in life is change, right? We know that change is inevitable intellectually, but it's hard to experience. It's experiential when we have it all. You ever think that other people have it all? You notice, you see them on Facebook, you're like, "Oh man, they have all the things that I want." <laughs> and you know and, and we have it all, and, and a lot of monks will kind of joke, "But where are we going with it? Where does it go? We all end in the same place, you know and um, it's a reality. It can be, seem more, morbid to this kind of relative mind that we have, the conventional mind that's like we're conditioned. We're born into the world. You go to school. You get a job. We tell stories about who we're supposed to be and how it's supposed to be. But we are all headed in the same place. And so the Buddha... Bu, the Buddha... <laughs> They should have called him the booba. I kind of like that. It's like the boogeyman, the booba. The Buddha is not really saying, you know, we should be morbid and uh, just obsess about what's difficult. But what he is saying is perinat, to fully know. To, in one sense, to be honest about the ways that we suffer, to not try to deny or avoid. You know, to be real, it's difficult to be human. There's a lot of territory we're navigating. What would it be like, I said this last time, if each one of us got three to five minutes, which we're not going to do, because it take forever <laughs> to share about our, our lives? You know, what's going on in your life right now? What if we could really hear from each one of us what's what you've been through, where you're at today? Your hopes and dreams, your failures, your regrets, all of those things. And so, you know, that's the task at hand to fully know, to look at that. And then we want to look at, well, why do we suffer to begin with? Why is there uh, disease, dissatisfaction, distress, disjointedness? And the short answer is because we want things to be other than the way that they are. The reason why we suffer is because we want things to not be that. But it is that. And there's where we suffer. It's really quite a simple thing to say. (laughs) And that's why I always say it's the hardest thing to give a talk on the Four Noble Truths. Because it's the simplest thing. It makes sense to us intellectually. But how do we fully know it? How do we really get in here and say, okay, how does my failure to accept... Things as they are. Maybe failure is not the best word. <laughs> my inability at times to accept the things the way things are. Uh, cause and create suffering. Dissatisfaction, disease, and distress in my life. You know, the physical body is a realm of limitation, of discomfort, of decay. But we want it to be unlimited, and comfortable and agreeable. We are destined to experience separation and loss, but we want relationships to be endless and eternal. We are plagued with uncertainty, powerlessness over certain situations and experiences, and unmet expectations, but we crave for certainty, control, and reliability. We often lose hold of moments of enjoyment, experiences that we want, that we hold dear to us. We cling to temporary experiences that we have. So we want things to be other than the way that they are, a lot. And that, and I'll talk more at length next time about Tanha and Upadana, craving and clinging. And that it's not our fault. The Buddha's even saying it's not our fault. That's the system. There's actually a guy I'll talk about next time, a guy named Melvin Connor, a neuroscientist that studied the motivational portions of our brain. And he found that all human nervous systems in their default mode want for pleasure and want to get rid of discomfort. That he said that the base tendency of the human nervous system is a subtle form of stress. He said, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. <laughs> so he says, we just want. That's the basic form. Right? That's what we're born into. It's an animal body. It's an animal system. You know? And so, they also say in neuroscience that our, our upper brains, these more human you know, brains, are their job is to rationalize the drive of the lower brains, so the brain is a rationalizing mechanism. How can I find pleasure? create this story I'm going to find it in this experience, so I'm going to try to build the experience to get that thing so the mind creates strategies it problem solves to get comfort, avoid pain and There's nothing wrong inherently, again, this isn't philosophical, with pleasure and pain. The Buddha is not saying you should enjoy pain and you should be fine with discomfort. He's saying that, he actually says, his teaching doesn't require us to abandon anything that's pleasant. Just our attachment to it. Just demanding that it's that way. And so this is the kind of subtlety of the Dharma, is how do we learn how to be with what's hard to be with? How do we practice opening, acknowledging, and bringing compassion to the moments that are difficult, to be honest about the moments that are difficult first, to connect around the moments that are difficult, and to learn how to care our way through them instead of cling our way through them. So we want things to be other than the way that they are. It's not our fault. It's our responsibility to watch the mind and to see its automatic reactivity. You know, without mindfulness, we don't have the ability to intervene, to make it other than that. You know, so we all have uh, you know we, we all have mindfulness. We all already practiced it. It's a capacity of the mind. It's just we've got to cultivate. To sit down and to really develop a close, a careful attention. The Buddha says, Yoniso Manasakara, careful attention. Careful attention means being really careful what we do with our mind. The ways that we react, what we do up here, the stories we tell, the ways that we relate to grief, the ways that we experience and relate to the trauma that we've had in our lives, how it spills out, how it creates patterns, how we keep finding the arrow that's giving us the wound the patterns of suffering over and over and over again because we have a hard time bringing awareness to what's hard, to be careful with our attention and to be full of care. Right. This is the other part is like the judgment that comes up in this kind of Western conditioning I talk a lot about because I think it is a unique flavor of suffering, this puritanical, perfectionist, rule-following, moralistic bullshit that we get involved in? Right and wrong, good and bad, sinful, righteous. What are the standards here? You know? Do we really understand complexity or do we just jump and jump in and say, oh, that's good, that's bad, he's doing great. You're doing awful. <laughs> you know, in, in looking into our... Being care, full of care. How, how can we look at the mind in those moments and say, I'm so sorry that you have these standards. And I forgive you because you're going to fuck up. You have a brain that is designed to crave and cling. To be reactive. To not want to feel discomfort. And so we'll do some crazy shit to try to not feel uncomfortable. I said last time that I've done some crazy shit to not feel lonely. Lonely. You know, I've done some crazy shit to not feel afraid. I've said some hurtful things to not feel betrayed. And so it's, you know, it's a matter of what is our, what, what is our interest in suffering. Are we willing to, like Carl Jung says, look at this aspect of the mind? And so if meditation's like frustrating for you, if you notice that the mind is, has a mind of its own and it's restless and it's all over the place, that's the nature of the mind. You're not doing it wrong. That's the mind. That's the mind. We're trying to practice like a babysitter, some patience and some kindness and some redirection and learning, as the Buddha says, to tame the mind. Not with taming it with shame and judgment either. So this is like the hard part. Shaming it. Shaming it. Taming it. They're so closely related. There there could be like a group on that. Taming versus shaming the mind. Uh, Write down my insight. Uh, Fortunately, we got the podcast. I'll just listen back later. Um, We want to... Yeah, be careful how we meet the mind. And so we want things to be other than the way that they are. That's just kind of how it is. It's how the nervous system's designed. That's kind of what we're working with. And the Buddha talks about kind of the distortions of perception. Why do we suffer? He says there are these four distortions of perception. So I'm going to read this discourse. It's 2,600 years old. You need a little bit of context to navigate some of it. There are probably, if you're new to Buddhism, some things that he talks about in here that are, don't make sense and that's normal. I edited a couple things to try to make it a little bit more readable. But it's called the Vipalasa Sutta. And this is the distortions of perception. Where do we or how do we suffer? He says, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, Assuming self where there's no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely. Gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of one's delusions, those people are far from safety. They're beings that go on flowing, going again through repetitive cycles of suffering. But when in the world of darkness Buddhas arise to make things bright they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what's changing. Suffering where there's suffering. Not a self in what is without self. They see the unlovely, unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view. They overcome all suffering. And so the Buddha would do this a lot in his teaching. Where he would almost make this elaborate presentation. Of, you know, He says like. But when the. In the world of darkness, Buddhas arise and make things bright. They present this profound teaching. What's the profound teaching? That you see that what's changing is changing. That you see clearly that what's difficult to be with is difficult to be with. You know, that what's not personal is not personal. And that what is... Unlovely is unlovely. What We get the fantasies that we get enamored in. We see them as what they are. And so what he's saying is, by acceptance of right view, which is the first aspect of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, by coming into this view that things change, things are impermanent, that when clung to, when we expect things or want things to be other than the way that they are, we suffer. when we see this wise view, when we come into these moments of insight and awareness, we don't suffer in those moments. And I love this about the Buddhist teaching, because he's kind of, I think, making very practical experiences, uh, you know to be this kind of profound teaching. So it's almost like, and if you listen to some of the Buddhist scholars like John Peacock or Stephen Batchelor, they'll talk a little bit about how the Buddha would kind of be tongue in cheek about a lot of things. And say, You want to hear a profound teaching? There's suffering. You want to know why you suffer? Because you want things to be other than the way that they are. We have a hard time being with our grief and sadness and loss. We fight it, we resist it, we want it to be other. And so what's the solution? Well, first to recap, we suffer when we resist what is. We suffer when we crave for what isn't. We suffer when we want permanence out of impermanent experiences. The solution is we can learn to abandon our reactivity over time. We can see more clearly into the moments where we're reactive, where we fight, where we resist, and embrace I call it the vulnerability of what is. And I like that word, I've been talking about it the past couple weeks. Vulnerability comes from the Latin vulnerare, which means susceptibility to woundedness. That by being born as humans in this body, in this mind, in this world, we are susceptible to woundedness. And how do we learn how to embrace, to turn towards, to care for ourselves and one another in that experience? To acknowledge what is, to be with the vulnerability of what is. And so you know, a lot of this is like abstract, and I want to, for the last part, talk about what's called the second arrow, which is a really uh, simple parable that the Buddha gave to help us to, how do we work with our reactivity? How do we learn how to embrace, embrace what's difficult in our lives? And so I like to tell the second arrow my own way. It is a discourse. But the way I tell it, I, I learn to tell it from teaching adolescents. So I'll go in and I'll drop some secret Buddhism on adolescents every now and then. They tend to really like it. So the story of the second arrow is that there's a guy that lives in a village. There's a guy that lives in a village 2,600 years ago. And he his family has fallen on hard times and he has to pick up a second job. So He goes to his family and he says, hey, I have to pick up a second job and I'm going to be working the third shift. So now he works the first shift and he works the second shift, or sorry, and the third shift. And so he has to get a job in the town over. The economy is dried up in his village, so he has to go and walk kind of this long journey to third shift. And when he does it, he could take the short way or the long way. The short way kind of brings him right through the middle of a sketchy neighborhood. High crime, shootings regularly, robberies, those types of experiences. Or he could go the long way, which takes a while. So he decides he'll be careful on his way into work. He's well-rested, got off his job first shift, got some time to relax. He says, I'm going to take the long way. I'm going to be safe. So he goes in around 11 at night and he takes the long way, has to walk about an hour. Goes to work. It's 2,600 years ago, so they don't have direct deposit. They give him his money at the end of the job. And he decides it's 4 in the morning. I'm tired. I'm beat. It's been a long day. I'm just going to get home. Screw it. So he decides I'm going to go through the sketchy part of town. I'll walk quickly, but I'll make it. He makes the decision to go through the sketchy part of town, and on his way through the village, sure enough, bandits come through on horseback, and they shoot him in the leg with an arrow, grab his bag of coins, and they take off. Happens suddenly. He falls down on the ground. He's shocked, surprised, doesn't really know what's happened. It's taken a while to kind of even acknowledge that he's been hit, and he starts to scream out, and so other villagers in that part of the neighborhood come out, and they say, What happened? And he says, I was robbed. And they look down and they say, you've been hit. Let us take you to the hospital We'll call the ambulance. And he says, no, 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 no. And he pushes everyone aside and he says, I knew I shouldn't have came through this part of town. Who hit me? You know who robbed me. You've seen them before. Who hit me? Did anyone see? Right? And so he gets caught up in this story. You know, who is uh, who's this person that shot me in the leg? And then they say, no, we don't know. We, you know, It doesn't matter. Let's get you healed first. And then he starts to turn it on himself. And he says, I'm such an idiot. Right? My wife, my husband's going to kill me. I shouldn't have taken this job. I shouldn't have gone on the shortcut. I should have taken the long way home. I should and shouldn't have done a lot of things. Right? And so the parable doesn't end well, but... <laughs> Is that in life, we have these two arrows in this example there 's the first arrow, which is the physical pain, and then there 's the extra in in this story, there are kind of two parts: one is the blame who 's to blame he 's searching to find who robbed me, who was it, and then the second second arrow is blaming himself i 'm such an idiot i should have i shouldn 't have. The Buddha says, when touched with a feeling of pain, the person without mindful awareness will sorrow, grieve, and lament, beat his breast, and become distraught. So in this way, this person will feel two pains, both physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot this man with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot him with another one so that he would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the person without mindful awareness will sorrow, grieve, and lament, beat his breast, and become distraught. So he feels two pains, both physical and mental. And so how do we learn how to work with the first arrow? You know, how do we learn to embrace our vulnerability, to experience the situational powerlessness that we find ourselves in, the physical pain and discomfort we find ourselves in, and learn how to let go of the story about it that causes more suffering, the story about who I am or how I am or the injustice that was done to me. It doesn't mean that we don't engage with injustice, but it means that we have to learn how to work with what's here, What's present. And mindfulness is really the tool that helps us to do this. And the first way is like mindfulness helps us to develop clarity. What am I experiencing right now? Being able to notice those moments when the mind's caught up in the story. You know, like when I'm driving down the road and I just got off the phone with a friend and they confronted me and I have this resentment in my mind, and I'm caught up in what I'm going to tell her or him, and I'm, you know uh, going to really let them have it. And when I'm caught up in the story of suffering, the reactive story, being able to have the clarity of mind to say, "Oh shit, I'm really in it right now." Non-judgmentally, just bringing awareness. That's just that first aspect of mindfulness is what's happening in my mind right now. They call this introspective awareness, looking into the mind. And I always say this part of mindfulness is always good information, but not always good news. So that's the benefit of mindfulness. It's good information. That's great to know, but it's not easy to know. Clarity also helps us to slow down. So when I'm able to recognize I'm tripping, I'm able with practice to be able to slow down and to say, okay, how do I slow down when my mind's telling me it's urgent? When my mind's telling me to act, to react, to do it now. Right? Anyone that's practiced mindfulness knows that this is one of the kind of first areas that you start to see some improvement is just that kind of... Automatic, you know, getting in the argument, jumping on the email, you know, trying to uh, cuss out the customer service person, you know, that kind of like automatic. Being able to slow down and, and asking our mind, like, how urgent is it for me to do this right this second? Is it really as urgent as the mind's telling us? And here's a trick: when you're emotional, when you're overwhelmed by emotion, it's always going to be urgent. So the mind is always going to tell you it's the most important thing to do right now. To figure it out, to fix it, to change it, to control it right now. So a lot of times, you know, when we're not in actual physical crisis, the best thing to do is to not. To tell the urgent mind, it's not that urgent, I have time, slow down, I know what's happening right now. It's good information. I've noticed with... Uh, The news that Against the Stream offered um, yesterday and sent an email out to the community, you know, my tendency to want to get on social media and to, you know, process in the social arena with other people all my emotions. and, And it's fine, I don't have any judgments of people that did, but I know for me there was this kind of urgency. You know, I, I was running against the stream center. What do I have to say? You know, people are going to really need to know what I have to say. And this kind of urgency to get in front of it, to do it now. And just watching that tendency and, and having to really work with my mind and being like, how important is it? I don't have much clarity in this moment, actually. I feel some upset and some sadness. I feel some excitement for the new meditations. There's a lot of confusing emotions in here. What would it be like if I just was able to sit with that for a little bit? So being able to have that clarity to identify what's in the mind to slow down. And then developing over time equanimity. Equanimity means an ability to be with a difficult experience without Uh, getting lost in it, and without avoiding or resisting it. So how do we learn some even-mindedness and distress tolerance? One of the good things about mindfulness is what we're doing is we're sitting here quietly with ourselves for 20, 25, 30 or more minutes. You're naturally organically developing an ability to sit with what is, and you build and open a wider container for distress. I can handle a lot more crisis than I used to, which I don't know sometimes if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) I was texting Rachel the other day, the co-director here, and I was talking to her about something and um, some experience that we were sharing, and I was like, yeah, I don't really feel much about it right now, and she was like, you have a wide container, and I was like, oh, that's a nice positive way to frame that. (laughs) And equanimity is kind of our container, our ability to be with what is. Our ability to be with what is. And then also with mindfulness, we can start to, and this is an active Capacity of mindfulness is the more active part, is to be able to discern with wisdom once we're aware, once we've slowed down, once we have some equanimity, a moment of space, and some clarity, we are able to discern what is the wise response. So, this is where we do engage with injustice. It's where we do come back to the issue at hand. And we try to say, yeah, what is it? What's the wise response here? What is yeah, I I know I believe in compassion, I like compassion, I value compassion. What does it look like in this experience, though? You know, being able to uh, look at how we speak and act. What what is it that I need to say? What is it that I want to say here? And then what's my internal response? How do I meet or respond to the emotion itself? If it's, Distress or grief, can I be with that? Can I sit with clarity versus grief? Can I slow down, open to it, equanimity, be with it, and care for it? I care about you. I forgive you. I'm here for you. I support you. Be able, being able to talk to our parts of ourselves that hurt, to heal them, you know, and to be with those parts of ourselves. And so if we can learn how to you know, find those moments of reactivity and to practice mindfulness, to have those moments where we're aware, where we can slow down, where we can hold, where we can choose our response, the more we practice that, the stronger that gets. I, I believe awakening is a practice. You know, awakening is small moments repeated over time, create habits. Awakening is a habit. We all have habits. We have healthy habits. We have health in our system, in our mind, in our emotional system. We all have that, you know, and then we have areas where we struggle that get activated and triggered and moments in time where we feel really urgent and we get lost in the story and we don't know how to handle the grief and we, you know become distraught and we feel hopeless and pessimistic and closed off and shut down. And there are all those moments that we have, and how can we be with those too? A teacher that I really love out in San Francisco, Vinny Ferrari, he says that there are only two parts of our experience, what's loved and what's longing to be loved. How do we include what's difficult, what's hard to be with in our practice? And so uh, next week I want to talk a little bit more about craving and clinging and the different flavors of uh, Tanha and Upadana, craving and clinging.